We learned some life skills. We made our best yeah. friends ever. We got some ridiculous partying out of right, our systems right, right, right. and had a lot of fun and learned a lot of shit. Also got kind of traumatized. Lifeguarding as a kid set me on a career path I have not deviated from, and it made me something I could not have understood as a teenager, a lifelong first responder for any emergency I stumble upon. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember people like screaming, does anybody know CBR? That was how we ended up there. Yeah. Out of eight lifeguards you heard from in this series, one became a nurse and five went into education. And it seems like the commonality of that path is a combination of, well, nature and nurture. So I don't know if we already were like that and that's why we went into lifeguarding or whether lifeguarding like contributed to those career choices. It's hard to say that you would be a good fit in lifeguarding or that life, lifeguarding would be a good fit for you if you didn't have some of that in you to begin with. I was kind of geared that way be a lifeguard and then go into fire and and do, do that route. I mean, I'm a land surveyor now, but um, I was kind of growing up to do that. Do you because. still see yourself as a professional rescuer? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we already had a helping personality inclination. And then once we had some foundational skills, we could just build upon them. But really, how could a dumb teen job set us up for future careers? What could it teach us beyond a nice backstroke? This episode, we're going to fill in those gaps. So take yourself back to the pool, where little kids pay a quarter to get in Monday through Saturday, noon to five, and many would spend every day there avoiding the 100-degree heat. In our area, most were at the high schools. Some were city-owned or managed. And some of you may not even be aware of the importance of community pools. This is Sarah talking about pools where she lives now in Southern California. Like where we live, it's not a thing. Like when I say, oh yeah, I worked at the high school pool in the summer. And they're like, you did? Like, what did you do? I'm like, it was free swim. The whole neighborhood came. Uh And it's like baffling, like not a thing. But we were driving to... A baseball game was down in Santa Ana and Jason's mom grew up in Santa Ana. And so we drove past and there was a community pool in the neighborhood. She's like, we used to swim there every day. Like it was still, you could tell it was still a community pool. I was like, oh, they do exist down here. It's just not in the area where we live in, you know, it's not a thing here, but yeah, Yeah. it's really interesting. I'm guessing the prevalence of community pools has to do with a, the average summer temperature, and B, economic status. For example, if a neighborhood has an abundance of home pools, perhaps they don't need a community pool. One thing that was cool about working for the city was we had the opportunity to work in a lot of different neighborhoods and see the city in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. Here's Vicki. Lifeguarding took me to a lot of places in our city that I had never been before. Mm-hmm. Like growing up, you know, as a middle-class white girl, I had never been to the neighborhoods that I ended up lifeguarding in, like on the west side. Right. So like I remember I subbed at probably Ivy and oh, I was going to drive out there. And my grandfather was like, no, I want to drive you out there. I want to drop you off there. He was like very scared. My dad drove me every day. He wouldn't let me drive into the project neighborhood by myself. 
One thing to know here is that Fresno, California is, like most of the U.S., a racially and socioeconomically segregated city. In 2018, the Atlantic called Fresno the poorest major city in California. Per the article, historically redlining was a major contributor. Segregation that began with Chinese immigrants evolved over time to target Hispanic and most explicitly and acutely black residents. Fresno's west side was redlined, while in more affluent neighborhoods, lots were sold under careful deed restrictions as to race. So seeing parts of the city we hadn't before, and honestly wouldn't have otherwise, is something we appreciated then and now value even more. Okay, back to our experience as naive 16-year-olds. It was a, it was interesting to be in a neighborhood where I had never been before. Yeah, it's definitely felt like a different world coming from North Fresno. It's predominantly white or at the time was predominantly white. Now it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more heterogeneous, but like in the nineties, it was all white, all black. The pools I worked at on the West side were predominantly African-American. The pools that I worked at in the East side of town were predominantly Hispanic. In the decades post-redlining, city plans and zoning ordinances kept the Southwest isolated. Leaders concentrated the city's wealth and development farther north, catering to its affluent white neighborhoods. The city built shopping malls, hospitals, and college campuses, while the Southwest got slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants. Currently, Fresno's poverty rate is 20%. So since we guarded all over the city, though not in affluent areas, I asked Vicky to describe what the difference was between them. Um, the West Side pools were basically free babysitting for the neighborhood. Yeah. We would show up and the kids would already be there. Like six-year-old, eight-year-old kids watching their toddlers, their toddler like siblings. And um, we would babysit those kids. And when we would lock the gates after the pool closed, they would still be at the community center. Oh, they weren't picked up. We'd see them walking home. Yeah. This isn't the 70s we're talking about. We're talking about the late so or the late 90s early aughts. Right. So we're not talking about the the 70s. Yeah. And these kids were just out there all day every day. At the two of the pools I worked at were at community centers on the west side. So they had free lunches, libraries, basketball courts, and the community really came to the community center like there were like adults that worked at the other community organizations and stuff too. So it wasn't just aquatics, but yeah. All the pools had kids we lovingly referred to as pool rats, kids that were there every single day without fail. These kids, we knew their name. They would try to hang out with us in the office or chat us up when we were on duty. Last episode, Phil mentioned taking these kids with us when we ran an errand. None of that was uncommon. But on the west side, the balance shifted from being a handful of kids to all the kids were there all day. Here's another difference. I'm thinking of like swimsuits, like the requirement that kids wore swimsuits in the pool. Like, did you guys have issues with that? We didn't. The requirements were not held up. No. And also like one person from the neighborhood would come and just give us like $100 for all the kids for the day. So like... um. I assume that this man probably did not make his money from uh, uh, he was a local businessman um, who wanted the kids to look up to him. And so he was always 
buying things for the kids and he would come by and give like a hundred dollars for all the kids to get in for the day and then buy all the kids ice cream and yeah and some of the kids are like my mama told me never to take anything from that man i heard that a couple times when the lifeguard closes the pool at five that doesn't necessarily mean swimming is over i'm dreading going to Quigley Park, yes. you would lock the gate and walk out and the kids would jump the fence and all be in the pool as you're leaving at five o'clock. Yep. What do I do? There's nothing you can do. We don't have a cell phone to call anyone, so no. what are we gonna do? Another area of difference was swim lessons, which happened in the morning before rec swim or in the evening. Yeah, we had very few lessons on the west side. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was like, we might have four lessons in the whole summer. So we were only open for rec swim because like the people in those neighborhoods, you had to go down to the office to sign up for swim lessons. If you don't have a car to get there, how are you going to go sign up? They could sign up at our pool, but most of the time the parents were never at the pool. The kids were there by themselves with their older siblings or whatever. It was still like. $25. $25. Yeah, it was like $25. Expensive no one was going to pay for swim lessons when basically we would get in and swim with the kids when we were off rotation. Yeah. We would get in and swim with them and we would be playing with them anyway all the time. We knew all the kids because they were there all the time, right? They were there, you know, longer than we were. So we would basically give free swim lessons. Oh my gosh. This whole thing like makes me. <laughs> So angry, though, because, like, talk about such an equity issue. Kids that are there all day, every day, that really need to know how to swim and don't have access to the resources. Because it was 25 bucks, and it involved paperwork, and their parents had to be there to sign them up. Right. And even if it had to be 25 bucks, right? Like, let's say, like, you know, the city couldn't afford it, and you had to be... There are absolutely things we could have done to make that more accessible to those kids. Oh, absolutely. I am thrilled to report that swim lessons in Fresno are now free to people under 18. You do still have to sign up, but that can be done online or via the phone. That makes me feel good. And I mean, the 25 cents entry fee was like, you know, there were so many little kids Mm -hmm. that we just Mm -hmm. let in because we knew that 25 cents was a lot of money and we'd much rather them buy snacks with that. Teaching swim lessons was the other half of our job. Some instructors loved it and some did not. Swim lessons were my least favorite part of lifeguarding. Okay. Became a teacher because of swim lessons. Okay. So we have we have two people that really enjoyed swim lessons. I loved the little kids. They were like so sweet and cute, but also they drove me effing crazy. So tell me what you liked about swim lessons. We received training on how to teach swim lessons at a variety of levels. The there was a couple people like giving you pointers, you know, like have a list of things ready to do for the kids. And so you'd start your routine with them. It's like, and, but it was like, so this is going to sound so stupid, but it really was rewarding when you could actually see a kid push off the wall for the first time and swim to you. 
Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Superman was, glide, baby. Yeah, it was it was really fun to like actually see a kid start off the beginning and like you're still holding on to them and then towards the end of the two week lesson they're pushing off the wall and like doing a few little dog paddles themselves. I can't remember their names exactly, but I do remember like talking to a few of the little kids moms and, you know, telling them, I think he's going to get it. Like just one more. He's so close. He's going to get it. And that was a good feeling. I think another thing we did really well with lessons was instead of doing all summer once a week, we did two week sessions every day. And I know that's a big commitment, but like when kids get in the water the first day, they are scared. Right. Then by the second day, they're a little less scared. If you have to start over every week, I've seen that not work as well. So I thought that was something that we really did right. right. Okay, so Christine and Vicky found it rewarding. I think Tanya and I had the same attitude about it though, especially the little tiny kids, the tadpoles. What was the little, it was like under goldfish. There was goldfish. Goldfish. There was sharks, but there was one under, oh, tadpoles. 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 That's what it was. They would do bobs all all lesson on the wall. (laughs) Do 100 bobs. 100 bobs. Bobs are just going under the water, touching the bottom with your feet, and popping back up again. An important building block for learning to swim. And you're just hoping like you see, at least for me, I was so scared that I was gonna lose a kid underwater because none of them obviously could swim and they wouldn't hold on and they're like down. You're like, oh, get, grab that one, grab it, stick it, stick in the wall, stick in the wall. <laughs> grab that one. <laughs> grab that one. Where'd that one go? Crap. <laughs> Yeah, because they'd get so excited, they would like want to do a bob on their own, and then they would let go of the wall and bob down to the bottom and then yeah. not come up. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Too far. Come on now. One hand on the wall as you bob. Oh my gosh. Like the amount of boogers that I've had on me, so close to me, the kids would just like pop up in your arms with boogers just dripping down. It was so disgusting. So disgusting. So disgusting. Remember, we were teens who did not want to be cold and uncomfortable. And I feel like the shade, like the sun, would come. It's freezing cold during lessons at five o'clock. It was cold. Mm-hmm. Like, that's when no one wanted to get in the water. Like, no one wanted to do the little ones where you're teaching them the blow bubbles. No, everyone wanted to teach the dolphins because then you didn't have to get in the water. Right. You got to just stand on the deck and mm -hmm. tell them what to do. Yeah. No one ever wanted to get in the water for swim lessons. So (laughs) I don't even know how we decided who got that level. We must have switched off. But I remember that was the best two weeks when you got that class. Sometimes we'd have lessons with just like one or two kids and like the kids wouldn't show up and you would just be (laughs) praying, please, please don't let these kids show up, please. And then they would come like skipping around the corner with their mom late, clutching their towel, having their little goggles on. And you're just like, God damn it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember that. And then I have to get in and do my lesson versus just being able to sit there for an hour. (laughs) 
the number one safety concern with swim lessons was hold on to the wall. If I am not with you, you hold on to the wall. You hold on to the wall. If there are six children in a class, I am working with the kids one on one by one. If they are not with me at that moment, they need to hold on to the damn wall. We're very passionate about this because what happens is you're making each of the children one by one practice a specific skill like Superman glide. All of the other children need to hold onto the wall and wait their turn. It will be such a short wait. But as the instructor, you're watching all the children, the one doing the skill out to you and the other five on the wall. Whoop. Grabbing a kid who yep. just dropped down and thought like it would be fun to you know, touch the bottom of the pool with their feet, but then forgot like that they had to figure out how to come back up. Right. I saved a child from that oh, yeah. once a week, okay. twice a week. All the time. All the time. All the time. Because they would not, hold on. It's been established that I just could not with the younger kids. They were too squirrely. I preferred like eight and up. But Corey is now a kindergarten teacher. She loves the littles. I think the hardest part about those kids were their parents and just trying to separate and not have the parents like on the pool deck. Yeah, like they could not be within eyesight of the child. No, no, no because if not, they were constantly looking and then the parents- mommy. And it, it was pre-helicopter parenting, which Again, I think we lucked out that it was pre-helicopter parenting, but that's when I really figured out I wanted to be a teacher as well. Just realized how much fun I had doing it. I liked seeing the kids progress. I liked getting to be creative and come up with fun things and work collaboratively with other people. One of my favorite teaching stories, I was teaching like the three-year-old little baby swimmers. And I remember having a student who I wore like a baby monkey for the majority of the two weeks, mm -hmm. he, at least the first week. And he would hold on. I got him to swim out or get got him to hold on to me. And then he would hold on to my front the whole time and I would work with the other kids and sometimes I could get him on my back and he would kind of whimper and then by the end of the summer we had him jumping off the side so that was always really fun I got kicked in the jaw uh -huh. teaching somebody to dive I have uh ew right is that Thank from you. that that's from that gross Her jaw was making a clicking sound there. Learning how to jump off the diving board was especially brutal for lifeguards. We would position ourselves in the water away from the board. We would pat the water in front of us. Jump right here, Timmy, right here. And without fail, they would try to launch themselves onto our heads and it hurt. During swim lessons, we would also teach water safety. We would do water safety day. And I remember teaching the kids, reach or throw, don't go. I remember teaching the kids how to 
pull someone out of the pool without going in. And, yeah. like, I loved teaching Safety Day. Safety Day, that's yeah. right. Safety that's Day, right? right? Yes. And, like, water safety is so basic. And so when we made a friend, or kind of during lifeguarding, who was our age, didn't know how to swim, swim. Mm-hmm. I started working in the community she grew up in and found out that over, like, over half of the fucking kids didn't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. Over mm-hmm. half of the kids in this community that I worked in, in Madeira, didn't know how to swim. Right. Right. And I should I should say that we offered adult swim lessons. Yes. And we had five brave adults that were willing to show up and learn how to swim. Like, you can do it. take learning how to swim very seriously. In fact, Vicki, Corey, and I actually became lifeguarding, first aid, and CPR instructors and certified new lifeguards coming up. In lifeguarding, I learned how to teach. Yeah. I learned how to teach by teaching swim lessons. I learned how to teach by teaching lifeguarding, which was so fun. And teaching lifeguarding was my favorite. And then on top of that, you have to be CPR certified. So then I learned how to teach that. And then I learned how to teach first aid and advanced first aid. And when we were pool leadership, we had to teach a variety of topics at all staff training. I would choose the most ridiculous topics to like lead during the all staff training situation I did like the sexual harassment component which of course we watched like a video you know straight from like 1989 or whatever and I of course had nothing helpful to add to the conversation about not sexually harassing people because like I don't know how you in lifeguarding don't sexually harass people it's like literally impossible And then I also, I do remember teaching um, emergency childbirth. Yeah. Did we do that? We did. So it was called, um, it was called first aid title 22 certification. Oh, okay. So it was advanced first aid. I think only pool managers and head guards had to have it. That kind of sounds familiar. I remember learning how to deliver a baby. Okay. I think that this yeah, is sounding and like yeah. We, we had no proper equipment to teach this. We had like a cardboard box and we were just like, the baby comes out. There was like a rope attached to the baby. <laughs> you have to cut it. Like it was like the most janky situation uh, ever. Any city of Fresno lifeguards yeah. would have to deliver a baby. Yeah, like a 16 like, year old. No hospitals that the laboring mother could get to in Got time to, to deliver. Right. <laughs> But I mean, although if you think about it, like if you're at the if you're at the pool and you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna deliver a baby, like the lifeguard is who you're gonna go to, right? You're like they're trained, they're a medical professional. They're sixteen. I hope they're not too high. Like that's what you're hoping, hopefully. So we all got a lot of experience teaching and training, and Vicky got something else that served her well: chemicals. That's oh, yeah, a thing. remember we had to like write it down every hour on a clipboard. Right, like right. The chlorine level and the pH yeah. level. And right, yeah. Right. You guys had someone to take care of that for you. On the west side pools, we had to add the chlorine or the bromine or right, the right, soda right, ash like right. ourselves. So that was kind of neat. I mean, as a chemistry, you know, ended up being a chemistry teacher. And now I take care of our hot tub because of what I learned in that job. So. 
yeah, it turned out to be a pretty neat life skill. And also the tablets that turn your pee purple yeah. or whatever are a lie. I thought you guys might appreciate knowing that. We all parlayed lifeguarding for the city into other jobs that needed these skills, and then from there into other related roles. The ones immediately after were pretty adventurous in comparison to pool lifeguarding. Here's Sarah. I got a a job at what's called Balboa Bay Club. It's still there. Like half of it's a hotel and the other half are condos and people live there. And there's a pool and then they have a beach entrance like on the bay in Newport. So I was only pool certified, but for some reason, like our rotation was the pool and then the bay. And so I'm like, I don't know if I'm qualified to lifeguard the bay. Like, and it was small. It was like a small beach, but, and there's no waves or anything. I mean, it was inland, but parents would just go and eat at the restaurant and then let their kids just run amok. And there was like a huge drop. Like you go into the water and it just kind of dropped down. So kids literally oh would just be running and be like, boop, down. So that was a lot of work because I was babysitting <laughs> kids all day. And actually, I also worked at the YMCA in Back Bay in Newport. And that's how I got my second job. There's a lady that would come and swim every day. She ran a company and she's like, you seem very like responsible. You're always here. Would you like to come work for me? Um, I got my like nanny job. She took her kids there for swim lessons. And she's like, oh, would you like to like babysit for me? I was like, sure. And she lived like on Lido Isle. And I babysat for those kids for like four years. Right. So definitely led to other opportunities mm-hmm. that I didn't know that was going to take place, you know, or have. After all these gigs in college, Sarah ended up teaching and is now an administrator at the high school level. Tanya got a degree in recreation and also now works at a school. I think. And do you think that going into like parks and rec was because of lifeguarding? It definitely helped because I had met so many people within um, those departments because it opened new doors. Vicky was also down on the coast and tried out for beach guarding. I didn't want to come home from Cal Poly. I wanted to stay there and lifeguard for the summer. So I tried out for beach guarding. I made myself swim around the pier. I had to learn how to run three miles in the sand. I trained my ass off. I went to the lifeguard, got hired, went to the lifeguard training, and they said, if there's a shark attack, you have to paddle out to the shark attack and punch the shark in the nose until it lets go of the victim. And I was like, put me at a pool. So I ended up at a pool in a park in Cabria. And that was perfect for me. I was in a pool on the beach and that beach, no one is supposed to swim in. So my whole job was to keep people out of the water. So I would take a break. I would go walk the beach and make sure nobody was getting in the water. Then I'd say, come swim in the pool. And it was heated and I did swim lessons and it was great. Then the next summer I thought, oh, I know I'll, I'll guard it uh, at a state lake because I wanted to be a park ranger. So being a lifeguard at a state park is the same as being a park ranger. And I was like, lifeguarding career, hey yo. And they were gonna give me a jet ski and everything, it was gonna be awesome. 
I went to the training camp. So they were supposed to clear the sand for this drill and they didn't clear the sand in front of the tower. And when I jumped off, I landed on a rock and I, and I rolled my ankle and I couldn't complete the training. And so I went to go pick up my paycheck from the training, but the guy told me the first day that my first shift was assigned was a, a fatal boat accident. They had to snorkel and scuba down to get her to retrieve her body. Oh my god! So that would have been my first shift at Millerton if mm-hmm. I had if I had not stepped on that rock. Ugh. I would have been f-ing traumatized. Vicky became a geologist and is now a high school science teacher. Tamara did something healthcare related, but also real weird. Adam and I were still together, and so his mom had this company doing like sleep studies. Right. And so I started working at the sleep that study place. place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I would do that all night and then go to school during the day. She would just watch people while they slept at the center. Corey maybe had the most exciting next job. I think the year I quit was the year I became a whitewater river guide. Yeah, she took groups of people on whitewater rafting trips. I lived in a tent for an entire summer. The closest shower was 10 miles away. um, And you'd go like every other day or every couple days. The bathroom was a porta potty. And strangely, this job didn't require lifeguarding certification. No, but you did have to be water trained. Like, we definitely had a lot of training. How to use the boat, how to get back in the boat. And I think that me having that background definitely helped. They did look for swimmers. They did look for people who were strong in the water. But it was personality, too, because not only we had to entertain the guests in the boat as we were going down 10 miles while rafting. You know, you had to have your jokes and... All of that as well. Did you have to save anybody? I did. Um, the other piece about it is that you're never alone in the same way that you're with, like, lifeguarding. The boat in front of you and the boat behind you are res- still responsible for making sure that you're okay and safe. And again, kind of similar to lifeguarding in the fact that, like, everybody's there having a really good time, lots of energy, um, but our days were like 14 hours. Right. Um, and we were getting minimum wage. No, really? Yeah. Less than lifeguarding? Yep. <gasps> so we really were not making money. And they really sold it to us. Like we were, you know, getting this experience of a lifetime. And granted, it was really fun. And at the same time, I had to work my ass off because we would wake up in the morning We'd have to drive the boats up. So one crew would go up. We'd go up on the truck, fill the boats, all the vests ready, all the paddles, everything ready for the trip, set it up. And then the other group would be getting the group together. If it was a two-night trip, they'd be making breakfast for people in the morning. So we were guides, but we also cooked dinner, cooked lunch, cooked breakfast, minimum wage. And afterwards, we would do a comedy show at the end of the night. So, like, you had to be on for so many hours. 
she learned some important life lessons. Any hot hookups? Yeah. Oh yeah, I lost my virginity. <laughs> yeah, no, I lost my virginity there. I did, yeah, in a tent. Remember, Corey, Vicki, and I were certified Red Cross lifeguarding first aid and CPR instructors. So in the transition time after lifeguarding and before our current careers, we also had a gig teaching CPR at Kaiser Permanente Hospitals as independent contractors. We actually got started with this randomly. At one point, I worked at a smoothie shop and the owner's in-laws owned this company that had the contract with Kaiser. I started there as a secretary and then was like, um, hi, I also teach CPR if that's at all relevant to you. Then I got Corey and Vicky into it with me. It was like an independent business, and then they treated us as independent contractors. That was just really fun to be able to do that, mm-hmm. and just a unique job that none of us would have been able to do without lifeguarding. Right. We started that. We would load our little cars up to the brim with 10 adult mannequins, 10 babies, two AEDs, 20 masks, bag valve masks, bleach, tests, videos, and removable faces. And off we went all over California to teach. I mean, it made me feel good that everybody, including janitors yeah. and parking attendants, right. had to know it. And at the same time, people who were doctors, mm-hmm. again, I'm saying optometrists because, <laughs> but like really wouldn't know all the steps. Right. Which uh-huh. is so basic. Staying alive. Staying alive. Staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> We get it. Most people who work in a hospital, even doctors and nurses, don't have to do CPR on a regular basis. So you might be rusty if it's been two years since your last CPR class. But it would still be shocking to us if they legit failed the class. Mostly, we had fun. And yet, talking about death all day for years can get you down. Vicky thinks it messed with her head. I think repeating those emergency situations over and Mm -hmm. over and over as a job. I think that really messed with my head at such a young age. The hard part about it is every time I taught a CPR class, somebody had a story. And I was really secondarily, I had secondary trauma from those stories because I was working with doctors and nurses who... So somebody would say, okay, this one time this happened to me and then this happened. Uh Uh-huh. And every f***ing class I taught, somebody had a story. Somebody started crying. That happened. Did that happen to you when you yeah. were teaching CPR yeah. too? People would like, break, like, because we're talking about life and death, yeah. right? People have been in life and death situations like what we're talking about. Yeah. And when they take that class, it's very triggering. Yeah. And those kind of things come out. So it's made me, I think, more prepared and more paranoid. I'm always thinking of worst case scenarios. I'm always looking for danger. Like, I've also, you know, I feel like because of that training, I've been put in a lot of spots where I've been a first responder. Mm -hmm. And so lifeguarding, that decision that we made when we were 16, like kind of set me on a trajectory where I became 
a first responder and like I kind of always will be like right, we were just right, on right, like I, I right. feel like we were just on vacation recently mm-hmm. and this man fell off his bike and went head first and I was in charge of the situation like mm-hmm. right yeah like if there's not a doctor or a nurse around or like someone more highly qualified right like yeah. all I know what to I'm good at first aid I know right, my first right, aid right. I'll step in and take care well, of it well and I feel like it's just that inclination right like if there's an accident on the mm-hmm. highway, like, I'm always going to stop and mm-hmm. check. Like, because of that, like, first responder mentality. I've been in a lot of situations where people have had seizures. I've been in a lot of situations where people have been injured and I've been the first one on the scene and I've taken care of it because I have this training and, and having taught it, I get this, like, step by step by step instructions in my brain. Yeah. I've got it down. Vicki referred to us as first responders, meaning the first ones on the scene in a medical emergency who can provide care before EMS arrives. And we gave some examples, bicycle crash, seizures, car accident, even just band-aids. But we had one situation that all of us stumbled into in a place that was supposed to be full of chill vibes. Do you want to talk about Reagan on the River? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Like what happened? Please note, this story may be upsetting. Now is the time to opt out if you choose to. The year was, we were mostly single and able to leave so and go on a camping trip out of town. We went up our last year lifeguarding together. It was kind of like our final hoorah, huh? Mm-hmm. We uh, we decided to go to a three-day reggae festival on the river up in Humboldt, and it was amazing. We had been going part of our bar routine every week. We went to, like, what, one or two reggae nights a week? Yeah. Like to go hear reggae DJs spin and dance, and it was so fun. So we pack up my blue blazer, yeah, and start driving there. Uh, Vicky lost her suitcase along the way, right? Because we don't know how to tie things down. Nope. We lost all of our luggage off the roof on the way there, (laughs) and then everybody pitched in to buy me like one new because it was my luggage that fell off the roof and. Everybody pitched in and bought me one thing or two things, and every I got by, and we could keep I on going. Remember that? Yeah. The line to get in was super long. So long. And then we get in, put up our tent, and then meander around, and there's like music playing constantly, food, edibles, all sorts of things, mm-hmm. people doing all things. Right swimming like people are swimming half naked in the river and just like just like a big hippie commune situation it was cool because you could hear the concert like while we were laying on the river and i have those pictures of us like we were floating in the river and swimming and laying out and we're listening to the concert Mm -hmm. from there and then the other day it was rainy we're having a good time, but we noticed there are some crazy partying going on. Like, yeah. people are walking around just, selling like, selling drugs. brownies and... Ganja goo balls. Remember yeah. we bought those ganja goo balls? Those we're, were good. crystal light and vodka. Crystal light and vodka <laughs> is the still one of my favorite drinks. 
but I guess after we went to bed at like a reasonable hour, like some people would stay up partying all night and stuff. And we woke up in the morning to brush our teeth and everybody was like, let's go to the bathroom, brush our teeth, wash faces, and then go and get ready for the day. So we walked to the bathrooms, do all that. And then on our way back, I remember people like running through the crowd going, does anybody know CPR? Does anybody know anything? We ran over there. There's just a guy laying on the ground and a guy standing next to him. And the guy on the ground looks like he has fallen, a little bit of dirt on his face. Uh, he's on his back. And I remember you ran up and were like, what's going on? And he said he's fine. And then the guy takes like an agonal breath. Yeah. And you were like, he is not fine. He is dying. And tried to give like start doing CPR and the the guy standing next to him was a security guard and he was like nope get back don't touch him I already called for help and we all just kind of yeah he kept being like he's breathing he's breathing it's okay it wasn't okay he was not breathing he was dying he was dying doing that same exact thing I'll never forget that sound no no I'll never forget that sound it's like burned into my memory me too it's called agonal respiration yeah so you think the person's breathing but they're not breathing as first responder you recognize that those moments are crucial and the time that we stood there and you were having an argument with the security guard saying please let me help this guy it could have made a difference you know yeah And then as you were having that conversation with the security guard, EMS came and they start immediately doing CPR. And then I was clearing the way for the ambulance to make sure that they could get in. We did CPR with the festival medics for a few minutes before they loaded him in the ambulance. Once the medics for the festival got there, then they had me squeezing the bag for a while because they saw that like the four of us like knew what we were doing. Yeah. But I think at that point, it was already to that point. There was nothing that you guys could do. Yeah, he didn't make it. And and I saw what that was like in real life as opposed to teaching it. Yeah. Immediately afterwards, we didn't know what the outcome was. We were holding a glimmer of hope, but just kind of dragged through the rest of the day. I mean, what do you do with that experience? We had all previously guarded life before it got to that point. We hadn't yet borne witness to someone's last moments. They scoop him up and he's gone and we go back and get ready and go about our day. And I remember when we went to a concert later Mm -hmm. on that night. We stayed that night and And, we had like a memorial thing. They said something about him. And they announced that he died. Right. And they talked about him. He was a Buffalo soldier and had done a bunch of just crazy, cool stuff. And he was young. He was like 44, I think. Something in his 40s. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of people knew him. I remember that was um, Ziggy Marley was the one that kind of announced what had happened Mm -hmm. to him. I remember his face, his graying dreads, the curve of his big, strong body. 
yet I don't remember his name when it was shared from the stage. We left reggae on the river a night early. We were done. That was crazy. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah. that makes, that, this just makes me want to like make Maggie learn CPR. Christine is talking about her daughter, Maggie. And yes, we all agree, please learn CPR. But since you just listened to that disappointing story, I want to give you a little bit more context on the purpose of CPR. Because the point is actually not to restart someone's heart. I know it seems like that in the movies. But chest compressions can do two things. The first is in a near-drowning situation. Someone's heart may be beating, but they're not breathing. Chest compressions can dislodge water in their airway or lungs, allowing them to breathe. And then secondly, for people who have gone into cardiac arrest. Partying all night, one guy had heart failure and uh, we tried to save him and we busted out our Mm -hmm. lifeguarding skills. Chest compressions act as the heart, keeping oxygenated blood flowing to their brain until an AED or advanced care can be accessed. An AED, the shocker thing, is what stops the heart in order for our own electrical impulses to kick in and start the heart a-pumping. This is why you see AEDs in malls and airports and such, because the combination of immediate CPR and then AED use is most effective. So CPR alone is not the big miracle TV can make it look, but it's a holdover, keeping the body oxygenated until help arrives. And thus, it does save lives if it started right away. Oh, I've had a lot of people live after. Because CPR is very effective. It is. Mm -hmm. People come back. People come back. Tamara became an ER nurse, so she's done a lot of CPR since this incident. But she doesn't always see the outcome. Usually in the ER, it's... You don't see people after. You know, Mm -hmm. you see they kind of go upstairs or they go all the way upstairs. Do you regret responding to that person and doing what we did? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think having that experience definitely you know it put all of the things we had been teaching for years into practice yeah i think we were there because we were supposed to be there to help because all those other people were just like you were saying they were asking for help yeah and so we were there to like not freak out sometimes that's all it's about just being there when someone needs help. Have we answered the question, how a dumb teen job could possibly lead to lifelong careers? You just heard how much we learned from lifeguarding. And we got management skills like scheduling and training and customer service. And Corey worked in the office, so she also got to be... In charge of hundreds of teenagers and young adults. I got to interview people. I made spreadsheets and 
you know, had to do data entry and be on call. And really, I had to, like, level up as a gr- as Right. It gave me the chance to, like, really work my way up and then become a manager and a leader and have fun at the same time. Work can be both impactful in the community and fun and satisfying. And we learned how to teach, which all of us carried into our future careers. It was the first chance to teach um, successfully. In lifeguarding, I learned how to teach. It made me realize I'm a really good teacher, so I could teach anything. And then I studied science, so I ended up teaching science. But it's where I learned how to teach. And we got a specific perspective. And it taught me how to help people. When you start, for example, in retail, which I'm not knocking, the perspective is to sell, to get people to take out their wallets and to maximize the amount of money they hand over to you. What we started with is a public service mindset. How can I best serve your needs, keep you safe, make sure you leave feeling good, just for the sake of care, and that's all. Lifeguarding is how do I protect you? Right. How do I keep you safe and give you a thing that's valuable to you? And I do appreciate, in general, that, like, life viewpoint. It's interesting you say that because it brings it all back around to water safety, which is a huge part of what we taught as lifeguards. Yeah. Teaching kids to swim, making sure that the public is safe around water. And those are things that we learned at a young age and that we taught at a young age, you know? So with the summer of 2023 being the hottest on record, public pools are increasingly important for health and safety. Please support them and all the lifeguards who keep them open, safe, and filled with childhood joy. We had a hell of a lot of fun and we made the best friends of our whole lives. And we may have saved some lives too, you know? Like, look, that just gave me goosebumps. Look at that. Like, we had so much fun and it was like the best summers of our lives.